There are certain passages of scripture, I think, that capture the gospel in a nutshell. One of them is love God, love your neighbor. Another one is Micah 6.8, which you sang choir, thank you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. It's a good lead-in, I think, to our parable this morning. Uh, We're continuing in our fall sermon series through Luke's gospel, and we're calling this series Parables of Life. As you may remember from last week, a parable is a short story or, or a riddle about life before God. And it usually reveals something about the character of God or God's reign on, in our world. Parables are not allegories. They're not quite so neat and tidy as that. Uh, but they're a way of telling the truth slant. By using parables, Jesus is able to give multiple meanings in a single short story. So because of all this, interpreting parables is at least as much art as it is science, as today's text reveals. And I actually, I feel a little bit nervous about today's text, if I'm going to be honest with you, because there are commentators that talk about this parable as the most difficult parable that Jesus has told. So are we ready to buckle up and do some work? All right, let's do this. Um, Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along in your bulletins, or if you'd like to use your Red Pew Bibles, you can do so by turning to page 79 of the New Testament section of your Red Pew Bibles. This is Luke 16, 1 through 13. Listen now for God's word to you. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people will welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill, make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd at dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you true riches. And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give to you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, 
For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, please guide us by your spirit and by your word. Let us see light in your light. Let us find freedom in your truth. And let us discover peace in your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So after last week's sermon, somebody came up to me and said how excited he was that we would be tackling the parable of the prodigal and his brother next week. And I said, if only. Um, Because I think Jesus, having just shared the parable of the prodigal and his brother, um, that was between the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the parable we're reading now, you would think that after such a parable that gives a monument to God's grace, we'd continue kind of hanging out in that rhythm. But Instead, Jesus offers this parable. And you wouldn't be out of line, I think, to wonder about the morally ambiguous character at the center of this parable. This manager, who is sometimes called dishonest and other times called shrewd, is a confusing character, especially because not only does his former master praise his actions, but Jesus praises his actions too. What do we do with this parable of the dishonest manager? Well, I'd like to start by helping us to get a little better acquainted with the characters and the actions in this parable. Uh, And I want to first start with like the debts that the manager cancels because jugs and containers are sort of like They're ambiguous measures. Are we talking like one of those things of olive oil you can get at Martin's? Or, you know, are we talking like a Tupperware container? What's going on here? These were massive debts. These jugs of olive oil would hold something close to 40 liters of oil. For those of you who are not metrically inclined, that's something like 10 gallons. And to cancel 50 of these 10-gallon jugs of olive oil... That, that comes out to about 500 days wages. So we're talking like over a year and a half of your wages just canceled, given back to you. That's about the same amount of money as the 20 containers of wheat that the manager cancels is worth. Also about 500 days wages. This is an incredible amount of money. This is an incredible amount of money by any standard. And, and, and this manager cancels 500 days wages for like all of the debtors that this rich man has. This would have been front page news, both in the city that the, man, or that the rich man lived in and also in the towns that all of his debtors were in. This would have like been front page news for multiple days. This was a huge deal. And this, I think, is part of the shrewdness of the manager and the cleverness of the manager's actions. By quickly erasing large portions of debt prior to the news getting out that the manager had been sacked, the manager puts his former master in a real tricky situation. Either 
the rich man can honor the renegotiated debts as much as it might stick in his craw and then be lauded by the city and the towns and the people as a remarkably generous philanthropist. That's one option the rich man has. Another option the rich man has is to insist, no, this manager has gone rogue and you actually, debtors still need to pay the initial amount. That would be a bummer as far as the press is concerned, I think. And any rich man worth his salt would realize any value recouped by insisting on the initial debts, that would actually be worth much less than the good press he was receiving. Therefore, this manager, this shrewd, crafty manager, painted his former master into a corner. What's the master gonna do? Take the bad press or allow the manager to get away with it? We can see the craftiness of the manager and how he takes a crisis situation and navigates it with aplomb, just very, very carefully, very cleverly, very shrewdly. Now, I want to be very clear here. I don't think we're supposed to agree with the content of the actions the manager takes. The manager is a bit of a rogue, a little bit of a sleazebag, if we're gonna be honest. And, and, and I think that we can disagree with the actions that the manager takes while also remaining impressed with how he balances competing ideas and visions for what he might do with his life. He has a clear and present understanding of reality and he understands the hearts and minds of others in a really impressive way. Now, he uses this understanding to be manipulative. And that isn't laudable. But his deep understanding and knowledge and discernment about the realities of the world in which we live, I think, is deeply impressive. Now, I used to really like this parable for that reason. I thought that the manager offered me and, and Christians generally permission to live and operate in reality as it is instead of just how we wish it would be. And I still think that that's true. I think in Christian culture, we sometimes make the, the mistake of thinking that we need to be naive about the realities of the world or we need to live in the world as if it were something that it isn't. But what I loved about this parable is how it encouraged me to understand and use culture with strategy and with intentionality that we live in a fallen world. Let's not pretend it's otherwise. And that doing this, that using culture strategically, that's not counter to my faith, but it's something Jesus wants to encourage in the children of light. But then I started talking about this parable with a friend of mine. Let's call this friend Fred. Fred was a youth sponsor in a former congregation that I served. And Fred really, really struggled with this passage. He didn't understand why Jesus would seemingly take the side of this sleazebag manager. Fred uh, had gone into business with a couple of his friends and started his own company. And I think that he found himself most easily inhabiting the role of the boss, of the manager in this parable. And I imagine that this parable hits differently when you're the one whose livelihood was stolen 
by this dishonest, shrewd manager. Fred complicated this parable for me because now instead of just being empowering, helping me to be shrewd and focused in times that might feel confusing where there are a bunch of different possibilities open and I just need to focus on what the mission and vision are, this parable suddenly took on flesh and blood in a different way. Because for nearly all people, no matter how rich, giving away 18 months wages for free to multiple debtors, that's going to leave a dent. Furthermore, the fact that an already fired manager has given away all this money, that offends like every sense of justice that I have. It might do the same for you, and I'm sure it did for Fred. This is just not just. It's not right. However, and it's worth repeating to be clear, Jesus is not lauding. Jesus is not praising the content of the actions the manager took. Rather, I think both the rich man in the parable and Jesus commenting on the parable praise the single-mindedness of the manager. The manager had a unique ability to see the bright, clear line from point A to point B and then to execute that bright, clear line. And that, friends, is a gift. It requires having a correct estimation of your current situation. That's point A. It requires also having a clear sense of where you aspire to be, point B. And it also requires the discipline to develop and stick with a plan to move from the one to the other and not get distracted by the other, you know, possibly good ideas that come up along the way. What Jesus and the rich man admire about the manager isn't the content of his actions, but the clear rationale behind the manager's actions. And this, by the way, is part of, I think, what it means when we consider parables not simply allegories. If we were to take this parable just as an allegory, it doesn't work real well at all. We get some really questionable ideas about ethics from Jesus, which if you're getting questionable ideas about ethics from Jesus, you might be doing something wrong. Jesus is usually pretty ethical. Rather, when we think of parables, we need to think of them as the truth told slant, just like in that Emily Dickinson poem. Slipping beyond the surface elements of this parable to plumb what might lie underneath, that's one strategy for reading parables slant. And this strategy allows us to critique the actions of the manager while also praising his resolute, his single-minded vision. The manager did not operate with pretense. He was clear-eyed about what he valued and what he was willing to pursue. His pursuit was a single-minded pursuit of what older translations like the Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, would render mammon in this passage. That very last verse, uh, you cannot serve both God and wealth in the New Revised Standard Version, is in past translations, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon has like this rich well of meaning. Wealth captures a lot of it. It can mean money, it can mean stuff, it can mean possessions. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And the rich man, excuse me, not the rich man, the manager was dedicated in his pursuit of stuff, of material comforts. 
That's one of the reasons he wasn't willing, I think, to engage in manual labor or in begging to make ends meet, because he knew he was dedicated to stuff, to comfort. Morality hadn't been a concern for the manager before he was sacked. After all, he had squandered the money he had been given to steward, perhaps because he wasn't trying to be moral with the money. He was trying to serve his own comfort. So it's in keeping with his character not to concern himself with morality after his firing. You can see the consistency in the manager's actions. When the manager found himself in a crisis situation, he didn't change what was important to him. That's what shrewdness is in one capacity to act authentically across a variety of contexts in a clever way. In crisis situations, when we aren't sure whether the church is going to survive, I wonder, do we continue to act consistently or do we begin to act differently? Do we continue to believe in the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, and in the way that he has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? Or do we scramble and try and make our own way? Do we act consistently in crisis situations? Or another example, how much do you change your behavior when you're with different groups of friends? Maybe you've got different inside jokes with different groups of friends. I think that's fair and wise. But are you a completely different person when you're with this group of friends as opposed to that group of friends? Do you have to act differently or can you act authentically in each situation? This is what shrewdness is. It's being the same person regardless of the context. When we, when we act in keeping with our mission and vision, when we act in keeping with the person God has made us to be, that's being shrewd. Shrewdness, though, can get a bad rap. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint, the word for shrewd, the same word that appears here, comes real early in the story. It comes on page three in describing the serpent as being more crafty than any of the animals that were created by God. And the serpent, we don't like the serpent, do we, in the creation story? The serpent, we identify as the enemy. We identify the serpent as Satan. And for Satan to be the first character that's discussed as shrewd, that might mean that shrewdness isn't all it's cracked up to be. However, even though we have some negative associations with being shrewd, it can be a powerful and dare I say beneficial quality to have when we use it wisely, when we use it for something worthwhile, when we use it for God's kingdom. When we are shrewd, we see that bright, clear line from point A to point B. We know where we are, we know where we need to be, and we've got a firm idea of how to get there. We're mission-focused. This is another term for shrewdness. When we have a worthwhile mission to believe in, well, that mission is worth pursuing relentlessly. And as citizens of God's kingdom, one of the missions that we have that's worth pursuing relentlessly is the reign of God, the peace and justice God promises. Being shrewd is about pursuing the peace and justice of God in all situations everywhere. This is what it means to serve God instead of mammon, instead of stuff. 
And I think this is the nugget at the core of the parable of the dishonest manager. We are called to pursue God's kingdom relentlessly because it's worth it. It's the most important thing in all of our lives. If we're going to be authentic Christians confessing Jesus Christ as Lord in life or in death, we can't let anything else share the pedestal with him. We need for Jesus Christ and Christ's kingdom to be the most important thing, the thing we pursue most relentlessly in all of our lives. And you may be with me so far theologically, but you may be wondering, Pastor, what does this actually look like? Are you wanting me to cheat a rich man out of 50 jugs of olive oil? And the answer is no, please don't do that. A couple examples of what this might look like. Earlier this week, um, we had a memorial service for Dave Weissman. One of the qualities that was brought up in the service was how he treated everybody with dignity and respect. He was a lawyer, and lawyers uh, interact with people of all stripes, both you know, the most senior judges, the most junior clerks, clients from every direction. And one of the things that he practiced was offering kindness and courtesy regardless of who he was interacting with. And this, I think, concretely is one way of pursuing the reign of God relentlessly to see God's image in our neighbors, whatever they may look like. Another example. We're less than two months away from election day. Uh-oh. It seems like the politically charged nature of our national elections has filtered down through like everything. I hate this, by the way. Can I confess that? One prong of pursuing God's kingdom relentlessly is to make it a habit, I think, to find five positive things to say, both about the person you're voting for and about the people or person you're not voting for. In so many of our our elections, we find ourselves actually casting votes against somebody instead of for somebody. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you even, if you can, before you cast a vote against somebody, Find five positive things to say about that person. And if you're thinking, Pastor, there are not five positive things to say about that person, I would say, do a little more research. That person bears God's image too. And if we're going to pursue God's kingdom relentlessly, we need to be able to confess that that person is beloved of God. That's what shrewdness looks like. And the other prong to this, and I want to be careful with this prong, is to see elections as exactly as important as they actually are. When we're engaged in relentless pursuit of God's kingdom, any political goals we may have cannot take on an outsized importance. If God's reign could still be pursued under Caesar and Roman brutality, I don't think God's reign is going to somehow be threatened if the wrong people win an election. Now, I also don't mean to undersell the importance of elections. We are citizens of this nation. I think that's part of the reason we have an American flag in our sanctuary. We are citizens of this nation, even though that citizenship is maybe a step less important than our citizenship in God's kingdom. It still is important. So when I say that elections need to be exactly as important as they actually are, I don't mean that they're unimportant or overly important. They're right there, not taking on an overimportance or an underimportance. And when we pursue God's kingdom relentlessly, 
then those things will fall into place because they are not going to be the end-all, be-all of our existence. I want us, friends, to be a people who models what it looks like to pursue the reign of God relentlessly in every context, whether it's in everyday life, whether it's in crisis. I want us to be a people that models what it looks like to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly in all contexts. A people who has the fruit of the Spirit, which includes kindness and gentleness in all contexts. May we not try to serve two masters, but instead serve God alone with shrewdness, wherever that may lead us. May it be so. Amen.